The young pilot's playing tales. Fifteen hundred hours. The first officer lived near Seattle in the state of Washington, some two and a half thousand miles from her workplace, Newark Airport, New York. She left home to begin her commute to work on the evening of Wednesday the 11th of February 2009, having been up since mid-morning. She got to her local airport and caught a flight to Newark, arriving a little after six in the morning after spending the night in the jump seat of a cargo carrier, flying all night across the country on two separate aircraft having switched at Memphis. She was due to report for duty at half past one in the afternoon on the 12th, so Rebecca spent the rest of the morning on her phone, watching TV, chatting and napping in a recliner in the company crew room at Newark. When she moved so far from her base airport, she'd considered getting a crash pad to rest for her flights, but decided that she could stay in the crew lounge. The company chief pilot described the crew room as a place to relax, but that it was not adequate for rest before a flight. Indeed, there was a policy that prohibited it for overnight rest. Rebecca was well thought of by her fellow pilots, who described her as a good pilot who was sharp, assertive and thorough. One of her regular captains thought her to have average to above average ability for someone of her experience. Her flying skills were considered to be good and she always kept her head of the aircraft and had good technical knowledge, better than the average first officer. Earlier in her career, she had been employed as a flight instructor and was proficient at teaching and performing approach stall recoveries. She would have performed upwards of a thousand such events, which included incrementally raising the flaps whilst flying out of the stalled condition, something that she would have done herself, as opposed to having the action ordered by the pilot flying. The captain lived in Florida and had positioned himself up from Tampa Airport a couple of days before to begin a series of flights. On the evening of his arrival at Newark, he spent the night in the company crew room before an early start. During that day, he flew a series of three trips before resting in a hotel overnight at Buffalo. Like his first officer, he didn't have his own local accommodation, but relied on the limited crew room rest facilities, hotel accommodation when the company provided it, or sometimes he stayed with a friend. The day before he flew with Rebecca, he flew a duty day of less than eight hours during which he encountered icing conditions. During these encounters, he correctly activated the ice protection system and the ref speed switch, which applies an additional margin of safety to the stall warning stick shaker angle of attack, since ice accretion is known to increase the stalling speed. Marvin, the captain, had travelled a difficult road to get to his current position as a captain on the Bombardier Q400 for Colgan, a US regional carrier. His flying record included several failed check rides, which included his initial instrument rating. This flight was deemed unsatisfactory for his lack of ATC compliance, his instrument checks, his VOR and NDB approaches and his holding pattern. His initial commercial check ride was failed, 
for his ability to correctly form his takeoffs, landings, go-arounds and performance manoeuvres. Although a requirement, he did not disclose any of these previous failures when he joined Colgan. On his first commercial multi-engine flight test, he was required to re-fly the entire flight portion of the practical examination. While working for the company on the Saab 340, he failed his first airline transport pilot flight check for the approach, landing and engine failure parts of the test. The list goes on, with a failure of items on his Saab 340 initial proficiency check and again on his recurrent proficiency check. Finally, in the following year, he failed his upgrade proficiency check in multiple areas, including the approach, landing, and in dealing with an engine failure. Early on the morning of the 11th, the captain departed Buffalo and conducted a flight to Newark, then on to Raleigh-Durham, before returning to Newark later that afternoon. Where he spent the night is unknown, but he was seen asleep in the crew room at various times during the morning of the 12th. After lunch, Marvin volunteered to do some company admin for the base chief pilot and spent some time amending manuals. Marvin and Rebecca's first two flights of the day were cancelled due to high winds at Newark, so they both waited in the crew room until their company dispatch released them for flight 3407 at 6pm, four and a half hours after their initial report time. Certainly for Rebecca, it had been a long time since she had done more than nap in a chair. Their flight to Buffalo was due to take 53 minutes, and they were carrying 45 passengers, which, along with their two cabin attendants, meant they had 49 souls on board their Q400 aircraft. The Q400, more fully known as the Bombardier de Havilland Canada-8400, began life in the 1970s as the Dash 7, a high-wing turboprop-powered regional airliner with low noise levels and good stall, short takeoff and landing characteristics, which made it suitable for operating from small in-city airports. When the more powerful Pratt & Whitney 100 engine was made available, as a stretch version, the Dash 8 was rolled out. In 1986, the manufacturer of the Dash 8 was bought out by Boeing and then by Bombardier six years later. In the mid-1990s, demand grew for a new aircraft to replace older turboprops and Bombardier responded with the improved Series 400 design which employed new technology to reduce cabin noise and vibration to nearly that achieved by jet airliners. To emphasise their quietness, the aircraft was renamed Q and there were three models available, the Q200, 300 and 400. The Dash 8 design includes a large T-tail, intended to keep the tail free of prop wash during takeoff, a very high aspect ratio, that is a long and thin wing, and elongated engine nacelles to house the rearward retracting landing gear. Although the earlier Dash 7 was capable of operating from only 2,200-foot runways, the Dash 8 can still use runways of only 3,000 feet. 
The Q400 has the longest of the type's fuselages, is fitted with a stouter and larger T-tail and can hold up to 78 passengers. A number of the aircraft have been lost, mainly on approach to land. However, the Q400 aircraft has logged well over 7 million flight hours with 60 operators and transported over 40 million passengers with an excellent dispatch reliability. When Flight 3407 departed Newark, the captain had accrued 3,379 total flight hours with over 3,000 on turbine-powered aircraft and 111 on type. His first officer had 2,244 hours with 774 on turbine-powered aircraft, including the Q400. The weather at Buffalo indicated a moderate but gusty wind, three miles visibility in light snow and mist. The lowest cloud was due to be at 1,100 feet and the temperature 1 degree centigrade. There had been some pilot reports of light to moderate rime icing from 3 to 14,000 feet in the destination area, but the last report was four hours old. The significant Met weather for their flight told them to expect moderate rime icing below 8,000 feet. Rime icing is the not-so-bad kind. It's easily spotted since it looks milky and granular. It's usually brittle and breaks off fairly easily. The bad kind is clear ice, which flows back in a solid sheet. It's hard and heavy and uncomfortably tenacious, making its removal particularly difficult. About half of the aircraft operating in and out of Buffalo at the time were experienced rime icing. The conditions for the arrival airfield were common for that time of year, and the captain had experienced something similar during his operations there only a few days before. In addition, the crew had received winter conditions training, which included the hazards of icing and its effects on the aircraft's stability and control, which included lightening of the controls, pitch excursions, difficulty in trimming pitch, buffeting of the controls, and sudden nose-down pitching. The NASA-produced video, specially aimed at regional and corporate pilots, indicated that the differences between a wing stall and a tailplane stall could be subtle, but the pilots needed to properly diagnose the icing problem because the recovery techniques for the stalls were different. However, the Q400 was not susceptible to tailplane stalls. As Flight 3407 climbed out of Newark, the crew correctly activated the airframe and propeller de-icing equipment and set the ref speed switch to increase to gain the additional warning it offered of an approaching stall. The first officer sent an ACARS message with their landing data for Buffalo, but neglected to indicate that they would be landing with de-icing equipment on or their increase in reference speed, which would have included a 20-knot speed buffer. The crew were vectored around the pattern and were in the process of intercepting the ILS to make their descent towards the runway. 
The captain, who was flying, was initially faster than required at 184 knots, so he initiated a rapid deceleration whilst configuring the aircraft for landing. Whilst the first officer was lowering the flaps, an incorrect flap setting was made, setting them to 10 degrees instead of the requested 15. The autopilot responded by raising the nose to maintain height, and the low-speed warning bar began to rise upwards on the airspeed indicator, but neither pilot mentioned it. It took 18 seconds, but eventually, at a speed of 131 knots, the speed display turned red, and the cockpit voice recorder picked up the noise of the stick shaker, warning of their approach towards a stall. As the stick shaker started, the autopilot automatically disconnected. There was time available to recover the situation and prevent a stall. But, in response, the captain made a control input that went against every pilot's training. He applied a 37-pound, which is 17-kilo, pull force on the control column and added power. The nose of the Q400 pitched up hard at a little over 1.4 Gs, which reduced the speed by 6 knots whilst increasing the speed at which a stall would occur. The angle of attack increased from 8 to 13 degrees, which was beyond the critical angle and the wing stalled, with a left roll that reached 45 degrees despite opposite aileron. The aircraft oscillated left to right, and the stall protection system went from shaking the stick to activating the stick pusher. In response to the stick push, the captain pulled back again, this time with 41 pounds of force, overcoming the stick push mechanism. To a second push, he responded with a 90-pound pull. As the aircraft oscillated, it reached 100 degrees of right bank, and again the stick push activated in an attempt to lower the nose out of the stall. Again it was ignored as a pull of 160 pounds, that's over 70 kilos of force. During this period of inappropriate flight control inputs, the first officer raised the flaps and called her action. Combined with the actions of the captain, this had the effect of further raising the stall speed, making a recovery practically impossible. The aircraft impacted the ground on top of a house and a large fire occurred, which resulted in 50 deaths, all those on board and one occupant of the house. The NTSB accident report is comprehensive and in some areas controversial. The conclusions it reached were that the stall was caused by the captain's inappropriate aft control column inputs in response to the stick shaker, that any ice accumulated on the airframe did not affect control of the aircraft. The explicit cues of stick shaker nose-high attitude and low-speed cue gave adequate time for the pilots to initiate corrective action, but neither pilot responded. 
that the captain's response to stick shaker activation should have been automatic, but his improper flight control inputs were inconsistent with his training that it was unlikely that the captain was deliberately attempting to perform a tailplane stall recovery, and there was no evidence indicated that the Q400 was susceptible to such a stall. That the first officer's flap retraction was inconsistent with stall recovery procedures and training. That the captain allowed a conversation to occur that delayed checklist completion and conflicted with sterile cockpit procedures, creating an environment that prevented timely error detection. That the pilot's performance was likely impaired because of fatigue, but to what extent could not be conclusively determined. There were some other less impactful findings, but all told, the NTSB report detailed 46 of them. Recommendations from previous reports, which had not been acted on by the FAA, were revived and reconsidered in the light of the facts of the Colgan accident. However, they boiled down to the flight crew's failure to monitor airspeed the flight crew's failure to adhere to sterile cockpit procedures, the captain's failure to effectively manage the flight, and Colgan as inadequate procedures for airspeed selection, management during approaches in icing conditions, and training. In various post-report statements, it was interesting to note that some of the members of the board, whilst broadly agreeing with the findings, had different interpretations on the level of fatigue present in the pilots and how it might have affected their performance. The NTSB chair, however, highlighted the 20 years that fatigue had been on the NTSB's most wanted list without getting substantial action from the regulators. In the aftermath of the crash, a public inquiry was held and the FAA issued a call to action to generate improvements in the practices of regional carriers. Finally, following campaigns and much public pressure, the Senate held a hearing a year after the report was issued, which resulted in many changes, some with greater impact than others. Primarily, the Airline Safety Act required that both the pilot-in-command and second-in-command of Part 121 airlines have an air transport pilot certificate and multi-engine flight experience. The Act also mandated that ATP applicants have 1,500 flight hours. This requirement placed a significant hurdle in front of budding airline pilots and many have questioned the value of building hours just for the sake of it. Indeed, ICAO offered an alternative, a formal competency-based training program where new pilots are eligible to fly as first officers in their country's airlines after only 230 hours of specific training, the Multi-Crew Pilot Licence, MPL, scheme. The key here is the training. These pilots are not trained to the commercial level and then turned loose to accumulate another thousand or so hours of unstructured experience, but rather they learn important concepts in safety and multi-crew operations in a very structured manner. 
Airlines in Europe, Australia, China, Oman, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, United Arab Emirates and the United Kingdom have been operating for many years under the MPL scheme. And whilst not perfect, many have achieved great success. In the meantime, the debate in the United States continues as the FAA has recently turned down an exemption request by Republic to adopt a somewhat similar scheme to the ICAO model. A review eight years after the FAA's changes concluded that before the Colgan investigation, some airlines, particularly regional airlines, met only very low minimum standards for pilot hiring, pilot training, pilot records and pilot professional standards. These standards have been raised. The change to realistic stall training is now underway. Airline pilot monitoring training, remedial training and professional development training were minimal or non-existent. These are now required. Standards for pilot fatigue management, safety management systems, flight simulators and low-speed cautions have improved. All told, the industry is in better shape. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. If you want to find out more about it, please go to AirlinePilotGuide.com. And if you're listening to Plane Tales as a standalone podcast, we'd be very grateful if you perhaps leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.